Now, I'm excited about this passage. I have been waiting for three weeks to share it. And, uh, and what I'm excited about it is that it is very counterintuitive. Now, that's a word we don't use much, but you know what it means. It's counterintuitive. So what the word means is it is a truth that doesn't seem to be true using observation and intuition. It doesn't seem to be true, but it is true. So, for example, it is counterintuitive to say that the world is round. It seems flat. I mean, when you're walking from Ecuador down to Antarctica, you don't fall off the globe. You don't go downhill. Everything's flat. When you're sailing across the seas, it's always flat. Water's level. And you see the old Mariner's maps, you know, where they're flat and the boats go off the ends of the, of the world. They thought if they could ever find the end of the world, that's what would happen. Very smart people believed that the world is flat. It's counterintuitive to the way we observe and the experience that we have. So is with the, with the earth revolving around the sun. It's counterintuitive. I mean, this idea, if I'm working in a field, it comes up in the east. I'm still working in the field. It sets in the west. I haven't moved. The sun's moved. Therefore, it must mean that it goes around. It, it, a lot of people, the, Caper, the Copernican revolution was colossal in advancing this idea that no, the sun is not revolving around the earth, but the earth is around the sun. It, it's counterintuitive the way we see life. Well, this idea that we're going to co- be confronted with today in Matthew sixteen twenty one, it's counterintuitive that Jesus has to die. I mean, think about the last time we were in Matthew. In chapter 16, uh, 13 to 20, remember Peter and his magisterial confession? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, do you know what he was saying? When he identified Jesus as the Messiah, he is saying that all the hopes of the nations are resting on you, Jesus. That all the promises of God to redeem and reclaim his creation, they all rest on you. You're going to be victorious. You're going to be the one that saves us. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of all the hope, all of God's work is going to be in Christ. And we're excited the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. Peter was the first to recognize that. And then isn't it sad that he's the first to rebuke Jesus when he explains how he will do this? Peter rebukes him that the Messiah has to suffer and die. I mean, what a, this is an atom bomb blast if we were there. He has to suffer and die. This is a massive disclosure that would have made no sense to them. It would have just shocked them. But for us to understand Jesus, we have to understand his death. I would go so far to say, to be a Christian, you have to understand his death. If you don't understand his death, that it was of necessity... That you, I don't think you can be a Christian. So I want to look at his death. Just three simple facets. The first point's going to be going to be larger than the other two, but it's by necessity. His death was necessary. That's the first point I want to make. The second point is that his death is a stumbling block to faith. It's going to cause many, many to be shipwrecked upon this idea. And then his death is the path to glory. It's the third point. Now, I want to make this most, most of the time, and I was tempted to preach this passage, uh, 1621 all the way through 27, because they kind of go together. The language is the same. Um, it's a continuing dialogue between Jesus and his apostles back and forth. 
but I broke it off because I want to just use today almost as a form of meditation. I, I just want to think, because so many times we look at Jesus' death and how we have to follow him in death, and we draw this immediate parallel, which there are some, there's some truth in that, but I, I wanted to just sit and meditate and savor what it means that Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the hands of the chief priests and the elders, and be killed. I, I want to focus on that. And then next week, so I'll have some application today, but, 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 but fundamentally it's going to come next week. I, just want to th- I want us to think and meditate. We're very distracted. We're very busy people. We're very busy with living. And so thinking about dying doesn't often come across our, our radar screen. So if you would turn with me to Matthew 16, 21 to 23, we're just going to look at these verses and, and spend some time looking at um, at his death for us. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Really profound truth here. First, we see clearly right out of the gate that Jesus' death was by necessity. It was necessary for him to die. Now look with me, if you will, at the text. He says, from that time, Jesus began. Now, when you read a little phrase like that, that's a verbal transition. It's a marker. There's a scene change. Matthew wants us to kind of move forward. There's things are changing. You've already seen this before, actually, in chapter 4, verse 17. If you remember the first four chapters of Matthew, he is diligent to describe the identity of Jesus. He was uniquely from Abraham and David. He was uniquely from a virgin. He was uniquely worshipped by these wise men from the east. He was uniquely confronted by Herod, who tried to kill him. He was uniquely um, complimented by God when he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God had never said that, only to Jesus. And then he was uniquely challenged in the desert by Satan. And then we come up to 417, and Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. In other words, Matthew is shifting, and from chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to our passage, it's been primarily about his public ministry. Right, He preaches the gospel. He calls people to repentance and faith. He gave this sermon on the mount, teaching about the etiquette of the kingdom. He did miracles. He called the disciples. He called other people into the kingdom by faith. And then, and then he continues with the public ministry until we hit, what, 1621. And where do we find? From that time, Jesus began. But what's he do? He begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. Jesus now shifts his public ministry to a private ministry, primarily, not entirely, but primarily about getting his disciples ready for his departure, for his death. In fact, the bulk of the gospel from here on out is going to be about the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty profound the way these gospels are written. So gospels are really Christian biographies, but they're not biographies as we normally read. You get a normal biography, and it begins with maybe the, the time, the history prior to the whoever the biography is about, 
you know, the history and the culture before this person's born and then how he's born and how he's been raised, what his education is, maybe what he did that was so significant and then how he died and maybe his descendants and maybe the implications of his life up to the current. That's the way we see a normal biography. Not so in, not so in the Gospels. In the Gospels, they focus on really two things. The public ministry of Jesus, his teaching, and then his death. That's all they focus on. Matthew and Luke have a couple chapters on the birth narrative. You don't hear about what he did when he was 16 or what he did when he was 23. We shouldn't expect to. That's not the point. That's the whole point of the Gospels. I mean, when these, when these um, Gnostics, if you're familiar with the term, they talk about where was Jesus in the first 30 years of his life. That wasn't the point. It, it, writing was not simple. They wanted to focus on what he did and how he died. Do you realize that the Gospel of John, 40% of it is spent on one week, the last week of his life? Because of its significance. It should be that significant to us. Now, Jesus is going to give a full disclosure of his death. He has given cryptic references prior. In Matthew 13, he spoke about the, the bridegroom being taken away or being in the belly of the fish. So he did speak about his death. This is his first disclosure. And here's what he says. I must go. Little Greek word with a real punch means it's absolutely necessary that I die. It's absolutely necessary. You notice that Matthew doesn't focus on the details of how he dies because he's focusing on the necessity of it. He wants us to get this impact that he had to die. He had to die. So that's what I want you to see. The first point is simply that. Jesus had to die for us. But that begs the question, why? I mean, why? Why did he have to die? Can't Jesus, can't God do anything? Why did he have to die? Couldn't he have done something different? Well, I think this is where we see really the heart of God in the cross. I mean, I mean just the, the unfathomable wisdom of God is revealed in this. So let me just try to tease out a couple reasons. I'm still under the first point. I just want to tease out some reasons why it was necessary for Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, to die. Number one, it would be to fulfill Scripture. He is dying to fulfill Scripture. You know the passage in Isaiah 53. It's very clear that the servant is going to suffer. You see it in Psalm 22. You see it in Psalm 69. But even at a higher level, even in the sacrificial system, when you think about God bringing forth that the high priest slays the lamb and the blood of the lamb comes into the Holy of Holies so that we can go before God that, that one time a year in the person of the high priest. Do you know all the imagery there? You know, this idea that in Leviticus 17.11, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So God had kind of knit it into the fabric of, of redemptive history, this idea that there has to be a death. It must have been obvious, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, to be called a Lamb of God means that your end is certain. It means you're going to die. But Jesus made even more clear about his own life and death being a fulfillment of the Scriptures in Luke 24. He says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, these things concerning himself. We know that Peter picked it up. Peter figured it out after Pentecost that Jesus had to die, it was necessary. That's why in his first sermon, he references it in Acts chapter 2. 
He says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Interesting blend of divine sovereignty, human responsibility there, isn't it? According to the preordained for plan of God, you crucified. Here's my point. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It wasn't one of those freak accidents. It just happened and you can't explain it. It wasn't plan B. Israel just somehow dropped the ball, so we better send in Jesus, our star player, to win the game. In other words, Jesus saying, I must go, means that it was always the plan of God to redeem us through the crushing of his son. It was always the plan of God. God had always intended to redeem a lost people, but it would come about through the crushing of his own son. That's always been the plan. And Jesus is walking it out with perfection. I'm thankful. God doesn't have to kind of mitigate where we fail. And okay, he's going to tuck here and he's going to move here. It was always the plan of God. That's the first reason Jesus had to die, to fulfill this glorious plan of God, because God knew that he would bring ultimate glory to himself through the crushing of a son and the redemption of a people. So we want to rejoice in that. But then secondly, the reason he had to die was to satisfy justice. You know, the whole Bible begins on a premise that we ignore. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God owns everything. He owns you. He owns me. He gives us life and breath right now. God is right to expect from us worship and joy and satisfaction. And yet every one of us here wants to go his own way. I don't need to prove that to you. The doctrine of depravity is the one Christian doctrine is As Chesterton says, it's the one Christian doctrine that has plenty of empirical evidence. It's all out there. It's absolutely evident. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. We want to be our own Lord. We want to make our own laws. We want to be God. We have a fanatical commitment to ourselves above everyone and everything. And this creates that enmity that Scripture speaks about. Larry, last week when he prayed, he read right out of Ephesians 2, speaking about we're dead in transgressions and sins. We have no hope. We're apart from God. And so God, how is he going to reconcile? How can God maintain justice with criminals? Well, if in our imperfect world we demand justice, won't he in his perfect world demand justice? And so he demands justice, but the way he achieves justice is incredible, by giving his own son, our sins would be placed upon him, and then the son would bear the wrath of God, that he could be just in punishing sin, but the justifier of us who have faith in Christ. This is Paul's whole argument in chapter 3 of Romans. He says, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one in this sanctuary right now that somehow evades that condemnation. You may feel good, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but the reality of it is, from God's view, all, there is no distinction, all of sin, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, Jesus is 
the means of God being both just and gracious to us. The third reason that it was necessary that he had to die was to display a mercy that we'll never fully understand. Folks, you could have 50 lifetimes and you can never live in a way that God would say to you, you are my son, I'm well pleased in you. There is no way. No, but God is absolutely perfect. Larry read Psalm 19 today, and you hear about his amazing glory. There's no way we can aspire to it, strive to it, achieve it. And God knew that. So he gives us a son as a display of his unfathomable mercy. Listen what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read it slow because it's so incredibly profound. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ. Won't that be interesting to watch him show what is immeasurable? The immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, that in Christ there is no limit to the display of God's mercy to us. There is no way we can trace out how incredibly kind God is to save us in Christ. That's how he's chosen to save us. Think about Jesus saying, I must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's going to display my Father's grace and mercy in immeasurable ways. We will never fatigue of thanking him for his grace. Why do you think Jesus was raised with his wounds and ascends into heaven? Why do you think in Revelation 5, we say the lion at the beginning of the chapter, but he's the lamb in the middle of the chapter, and we sing the song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They're looking at his wounds. Forever we'll be reminded of the glory of the grace of the gospel of him dying for us. This is why Jesus had to die. But then last, Jesus had to die to achieve an actual salvation. So Jesus didn't die as some display of divine love. It does reveal God's love, no doubt. But many people will say, well, no, God wanted to show us how much he loves us. And they don't go the next step, which means, which means, is it just a display? Is it just revealing something that's a potential in my life? Or did he actually achieve something? You know, if I jump off the roof declaring my love for Carol, I want to show her how much I love her, then I'm going to sacrifice myself to prove it. What would she say? She'd say, don't ruin the bushes. No, she would say, <laughs> she would say, you would display your love for me by living for me. And, and so Jesus' death actually accomplished forgiveness, reconciliation with God. It actually accomplished something. Salvation is not a potential for us. It actually occurred. That's why we are now sons and daughters. That's why Jesus could say to the man on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not, well, we'll see how it goes at the end of the day. Today you'll be with me. This is incredible. When he said, I must go to Jerusalem, I must go there to suffer and to die. 
He's showing us the necessity of his death. Now listen, many people just flat out reject this. They flat out reject it. Friedrich Nietzsche said this. He said this. These are very harsh words. So he's at the one end of the spectrum. He's a German philosopher, had no love for Christ. He says, look at whom they worship. Look at this God whom they worship. How foolish and imbecilic to follow one who died and then to claim that that death is victory. There is foolishness and there is foolishness. There is madness and there is madness. But to call death victory is the ultimate madness at all, of all. This is a pathetic deity and he's followed by a pathetic people. There is deep antagonism over this idea. But not just among atheistic philosophers, even within the community that would call themselves Christian. Many within the broader, what they would call as the Christian community, will look at this idea of substitutionary atonement being necessary for our salvation would be the height of, of cosmic child abuse, is what it's been termed. Many people just flat out disbelieve this. They just don't agree with it. Others in the church tend to diminish it more by elevating other things. They diminish the centrality of this death by elevating moralism, by what I'm doing and how I'm participating or, or how much I'm giving or how much I'm serving. And look at my life. And, and so the focus of my life tends to be around what I'm doing rather than what he has done. There is a diminishing while you may believe. It, it's disastrous to a life of worship. Uh, there's others that, that find their identity as Christians within their conservatism. Uh, how they dress or how they vote or the way they educate their children. And, and, and that is how they draw their identity as a Christian. And they put a premium on that as opposed to the... Or theological acumen. They just understand theology and they pursue study, study, study. And they want to know all the positions and all the arguments. And they find that their identity, their security in God is, is based upon how well they understand theology. No, no, no. The central rallying point for the Christian will always be the death. It will always be surrounded in this, I must go to Jerusalem. This is where all of us find our commonality. This is where we all come together. All ethnicities, all colors, all styles, all educational backgrounds, all social positions. We find it right here. See, the Christian delights in Jesus saying, I must go and be killed. The Christian recognizes that he or she will be damned apart from this. The Christian delights in Jesus going. We would want to help him go there because apart from his work, we have no hope. This is why Paul would say, this is why actually, you know, regardless of church governmental forms, regardless of worship forms, regardless of views on baptism, G.C. Rawls says, we can all get to heaven safely, even with differences of opinion, but not here, not here. We have to be united. And that's why this gospel, this gospel is the central point of this church. This is what we find our commonality in. And this commonality is so great that it overwhelms all of our differences in diversity. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified, him dead. Listen to what Paul said in Acts 17 as he's preaching. He says, let me tell you what he says. I thought I had it written down.
He says, and Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the necessity of it. Folks, if you say, no, 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 I admit that Jesus died for me, that is woefully inadequate. I mean, it's a historical fact he died. But do you believe it was necessary for you? This is, for the non-Christian here, this is really bedrock. This is where souls are in grave danger. Because if he didn't have to die for you, then there's some other requirement that you're trying to meet to find peace and reconciliation with God. And it won't lead there. But for the Christian here, this is our point of delight. Can you rejoice with me that Jesus was so faithful to the Father, so committed to the command, so understanding of the plan of God that he would say, yes, it's necessary, and I must go. I love in Luke 9 where it says, and he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go there because he knew, he knew that it would be for the redemption of people unto the glory of the Father. Do you believe this? This is where I call you to faith. Do you believe that it was necessary that apart from his death you have no hope? Do you believe that? Well, the, the second facet of his death is that it is a stumbling block to faith. It is truly. You see this in verse 22. Look at it with me. Peter says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. I, I love Peter's swagger. I really do. It's just amazing. He is such an example for us and uh, immortalized on the pages of Scripture. But Peter's understanding is, is very understandable for us, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God, right? He's going to lead the armies of God and push the Romans into the sea. I mean, he's going to be like a general. And with his armies, he's going to just have victory after victory after victory. Oh, sure, he would admit that the Messiah had enemies and they will come and attack. But Messiah will crush them. It'll be a mopping up operation. And he's going to go and he's going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, which is ironic when Jesus said that I have to go to Jerusalem. Here, Jerusalem, Peter's thinking, is the place where it's all going to coalesce and come together for glory. And Jesus is saying, no, I have to go there to die. I mean, Peter, Peter didn't have the category for that. Peter's thinking, this is all great. And I got to imagine that Peter also had some degree of self-interest here. Peter's a big guy in the new forming company. And Jesus is going up, up, up. And if I hitch my wagon to Jesus, you know, you're in good shape with the vice president. That's always good, right? Because as he goes, so I go. And now Jesus is introducing this idea of suffering and dying. What's that mean for Peter's future with the company? And it doesn't look good to me. And so, and so Peter takes Jesus to the side, and he says he rebukes him. Now, I want you to remember, that's a very intense word. It's the word that Jesus used when he rebuked the storm. It's the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked the demons. So G Peter, I don't think Peter is speaking with anger, but he really is speaking with, no, Jesus, no, we're not going to let this happen to you. This can't be the way. Peter is, is arguing for a Messiah of glory. He doesn't see a Messiah of the cross. He doesn't see a Messiah of suffering. 
Now, folks, remember I left you back three weeks ago with verse 20. Do you remember 20, verse 20? If you look there, it says that Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one that he's the Christ. And everybody's wondering, why would he do that? Do you see why? Didn't understand. I mean, the natural mind cannot understand this. We think Christ, we think victory. The Christ thinks victory, but after defeat and humiliation. That's the counterintuitive way of God. It's the paradoxical nature of God. This is a stumbling block for people. It, it, it's, it's, a, and it, it's just a stumbling block. And I want to warn you, particularly with us in this, in this uh, North American church, uh, we, as Christians, we don't spend the time to develop a theology of the cross, a theology of the cross. And that was a term used by Martin Luther, the great reformer in the, in the 16th century, 15th and 16th century. We don't have a theology of the cross, a theology of, of suffering as part of the Christian life. We pursue, as Martin Luther would argue, uh, those with a theology of glory theology of glory. In other words, if you struggle with understanding how darkness and humiliation can be folded into God's redemptive plan and end up in his glory, or if you struggle with trials and adversity being part of the fabric of God's overarching plan, we, we tend to move towards a theology of glory. In other words, we understand God as faithful when he heals us and when he gets us the job that we need and when he, he um, gets us you know, our marital problems fixed or when he does the things that we need to make this life better. That's a theology of glory. We want to pull tomorrow and all the glories of heaven into today to make this life better. And that will not serve you well in this life. We need to have a theology of the cross. You know, we see it today, of course, in modern prosperity teachers. And many of your preachers on the radio will want to promote life now if you have faith and if you pray enough. God wants you to be fulfilled and satisfied and happy and overcomers. And, and they promote the same theology that Peter was actually embracing. And, and suffering is a main plank that God finds very useful in developing his people. It was Samuel Rutherford that said, God keeps his best wine in the cellar of suffering. Suffering is, is part of the fabric of life. Tim Keller wrote this about it. He said, suffering is at the heart of the Christian story. Suffering is the result of our turning away from God, and therefore it's the way through which God himself and Jesus has come to rescue us. Jesus enters suffering to transform it and fill it with meaning as he leads us out of it ultimately. So suffering is part of it. So watch the danger, people. When, when, when you think about your entering struggles and trials, let's be stewards of the suffering. Let's develop a, an idea. And we're going to see this more next week. But there's another warning here. The other warning that you see in Peter, Peter, was, he had a position of preeminence. His eyes were open to the glory of Christ. We saw that weeks back. But look, he's filled with spiritual ignorance, isn't he? I mean, he, he doesn't understand. He sees Christ. He sees that he's the Christ. He sees that he's bringing a kingdom. And yet he doesn't want him to go the way of the cross. Why? I don't think Peter understands the, the infinite holiness of God. I don't think he understands the depth of his own sin. 
See, we are so committed to upholding our goodness. I, I talk to many people, even within Christendom, who will affirm to me that they're really good people. It's so funny. I find myself often saying, no, you're really not. I'm like, why does anybody like me? Because I'm having to say, you have to understand the nature of sin. You know, Gresham Machen was this theologian of the 20th century. He says, without a consciousness of sin, the gospel becomes an idle tale, like Aesop's fable. We can't understand the magnitude of his mercy if we don't see the magnitude of our sin. I don't want to remain there. I don't want to live in the despair of my own brokenness, but I surely want to see it so I can delight in the magnificence of God. That's why, you know, John Newton, I've quoted this to you many times. He's the author of Amazing Grace. And just uh, if you read his pastoral letters, they are filled with a gentleness and a sweetness. I remember Carol reading this book and she, every other page, you got to hear this, you got to hear this. I mean, she was, I think it was her favorite book, his, these pastoral personal letters of um, John Newton. But, but as he got in age, began losing his sight, began losing other faculties. He had to step out of the pulpit. And they, they, uh, he, he said this toward the end of his life. He said, as he was losing his faculties, he was saying two things I remember. One is, I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. Two, he's a great savior. At the end of the day, those two things will usher us into glory. Don't lose sight of that. Don't, you know, don't fall prey in this culture. We've moved from being sinners to being victims. Listen, victims need therapy. Sinners need a savior. If we lose sight of that, we lose sight of our need for Christ. That's what Peter succumbed to. Okay, the third facet, the third, fa- excuse me, the third facet of, of um, his death is that it's the pathway that leads to life, true life. Look at what he says in or uh, excuse me, look in verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, uh, a couple things here. Um, Jesus turned, so the implication is that he speaks to all the disciples at this point. Now, he speaks to Peter, but invariably they all agreed with Peter. They all were probably indignant because they all hitched their wagons to Jesus, and nobody likes the direction the wagon turned. And so they're all probably indignant. He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Now, that language you've heard before in Matthew 4.11, when he was confronted by Satan, and Satan confronted him and tried to tempt him from the way of the cross. And, and Jesus says, away from me, Satan. And, uh, and so he did not succumb to this diversion, this temptation to take the easy road, the glory road, if you will. And so now Peter comes and he's espousing Satan's plans. This idea of, no, 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 you don't have to go the way of suffering. You can do it. You can do it in another way. And so he rebukes. Can you imagine the harshness? And just for a minute, just think about the humanity of Christ here. Upon Peter, I'll build my church. Upon this rock, and now this rock's in the middle of the road causing stumbling all over the place. I mean, can you imagine? He has to say, get behind me. Peter, you're thinking the things of men. You're pursuing with the machinery of men. You're not thinking the thoughts of God. Jesus is thinking the thoughts of God, which is that it's out of the humiliation 
of this Messiah suffering and dying that will come the greatest glory, that out of death will arise life. They missed what he had said. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed and I must be raised. How often we forget to think of the resurrection and the glories that await because we can't get beyond death and suffering. They could not get beyond it. And so Jesus chides them. Makes me think this, this kind of working out of humiliation and death to the exaltation, I'm sure draws many of your minds right to Philippians 2. Let me read it to you in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, that's us, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is the Lord, to the praise and glory of God. That's what we see here. In fact, Dorothy Sayers, the playwright, writes this, just very brief, very short, but very powerful. God did not abolish the fact of evil. He transformed it. He did not stop the crucifixion. He rose from the dead. This is how God brings forth life, is through death shows his glory. So the charge to us, if we're going to understand his death, we have to see the necessity of it, but we also have to see that it is a stumbling block to many. And then we have to see that it is the only pathway to glory. Are your mind set on the things of this world? Are you, is your mind set on the things of men? We're going to tease this out more next week in 24 to 27, but, but you know where I'm going with it. I mean, if we're striving to cultivate, to protect, to walk in total fulfillment of joy in this life. We're running the risk of just living along the things of men. We're, we're scared to, to take a mission trip. We, we don't want to risk sharing the gospel with our neighbor. We don't want to risk giving more than we can afford. We don't want to risk extending ourselves out of our comfort zone. We don't want to risk any of those things. We don't want to jeopardize what we have right here. That's living according to the things of men. I want to protect my investment. I want to keep what I have. I don't want to take any risks. And really, that's a practical atheism of heaven. There's no thought giving. The plan of glory is through humiliation and death. That's what we're going to see next week. That's why these prosperity doctrine preachers, they trip all over themselves from 24 to 27. What do you do with that? When he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Whoever wants to save his life, lose it. If you want to lose your life, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return to his, for his soul? I mean, think about those. I mean, those are, those are bracing. I want you to think through those this week in, in preparation for next week. I mean, they're very bracing. If you, don't, if you think along the lines of, I've just got to secure my life here you'll miss the glory that's to come. But to have the thoughts of God is to risk everything temporally, knowing that there is no eternal risk. There's no eternal risk. That's where life is. I mean, to think the thoughts of God is to treasure heaven. It's to treasure Christ. It's to treasure all that we have. It is to look forward 
It isn't just to look with my eyes cast a foot in front of my feet. I mean, it's to look to glory. It's to, it's to consider. So many times we think about heaven. I'm reading an article on it this week, and author brought up a great point. He says, you know, when people are dying, and particularly when they're younger, because it seems to, you know, just viscerally and emotionally, it's so much more difficult. But the person never wants to die, even the Christian, because they feel, he said, it's like leaving a party early. Nobody wants to leave a party early. I mean, everybody's still living. Everybody's still moving on. Everybody's still working. You're all having fun. You're all gathering around Christmas. And we have to leave the party early. And what does that say about where we're going? What's it say about that? Isn't that the party? Isn't that what we're going toward? Do we think about this? I mean, I think about when, and I may have quoted this recently, I forget, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was reminded of what he said when he was leaving the cell. He was a German. Did I quote this last week? Okay, good. Carol's my other brain, so when I have problems, like, am I drooling, honey? Am I drooling? She keeps me on the straight and narrow. Leaving the prison cell, allies were about to liberate the camp within a few days, and uh, of course he didn't know that, or may, may he, know, he may knew it. Hitler knew it because he had him executed a couple days before it was liberated. And he said to his cellmate, he says, today, he says, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. In other words, the, this, this broken life that we have is now ending, but now I'm beginning life. Now I'm going to enjoy life. Now I'm entering the party. That's the mindset of the one who understands that it's through humiliation, through suffering, and ultimately it will be through death that Jesus will bring us to true life. So we have to understand the death of Christ, the necessity of it. We want to understand that it is a stumbling block, and if you are stumbling now, Please, come speak to an elder. Speak to me. Don't, don't give this time. Speak to it today. Don't, don't wait. And then we have to understand that his death is the path to life. And the reason that's so essential is because in 24 to 27, he's going to call you to death. He's going to bid you to come and die so that you might live. So let's take a minute now and, and just silently, I, I want to meditate on Christ and all that he has done for us because it's the beauty of the Savior in these verses that is going to be the fuel for the call to come and die. Do you hear me? That it's the beauty of Christ that is going to be the fuel to call you to die so that you might have life. His goal is that you would have life and have it to the full. That's why he's come. So let's take a minute in silent reflection, and then um, Ray is going to close us in prayer.